This episode is sponsored by Enriched Superfoods. Enriched is my go-to store for the most powerful, most pure superfoods on the plain et. They've got all the good stuff from maca to matcha, from shilajit to powdered greens. But you know what I love the most? I love the mushrooms. Now I know what most of you are thinking, get on with the show, right? But I know what else you're thinking. You're thinking, how can I get better at strangling people? Us jiu-jitsu guys, we're all the same. We want to be better, we want to be badder. Well, being better requires two things, learning more stuff and being able to execute more stuff. And Enriched has got you covered with what I'm calling the White Basement Jiu-Jitsu Super Stack. First is Lion's Mane Mushroom to supercharge memory, focus and clarity and even better, give a neurotrophic boost literally helping you grow new jiu-jitsu brain cells. Now, a jiu-jitsu super brain is all well and good, but if you can't execute on the mat, then it don't mean jack. That's why the second half of the super stack is the legendary Cordyceps CS4 mushroom extract, scientifically proven to offer heroic levels of stamina and energy, as well as improved lung function, actually helping you breathe better while you stop other people from breathing at all. Go to enriched.co, that's E-N-R-I-C-H-D.co, and use the promo code WHITEBASEMENTPOD for a 10% discount across the whole site. Want to get more taps in more rounds and more respect from more people? Then get super stacked. Go to enriched.co and use the promo code WHITEBASEMENTPOD. And I was working with a, a, a group of, of soldiers in Macedonia, uh, yeah, Macedonia and Kosovo that were very switched on guys. And they were gearing up to go out to Afghan and do some very, as a soldier, they were going to be doing the kind of work you want to be doing. Um, but my son had just been born. Um, my son was maybe a year old and I, I'd had a bad day um in in macedonia i come home managed to get to a phone and i phoned him up and he was only young but him just blurbering down the phone it kind of melted my heart a little bit and i knew that if i went back into the army fully and got into the units that i wanted to get into i was going to be away a lot i could already tell that the whole afghan and uh, thing was going to go on for a long time um you know, as as a soldier wanting to do soldiering stuff, that's where you wanted to be. But I could see this wasn't, I wasn't going to be in and out. It was going to be a long, ongoing thing. And I just didn't want to be away from him. You know, I'd, this Kosovo was the first time I'd been away and had a kid. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the White Basement Podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at White Basement Pod. My guest today is Kevin Capel, founder and head coach at RGA Bucks. He's a decorated black belt under Roger Gracie and Mauricio Gomez, holding national and European titles at black belt. He's head coach for the RAF Jiu-Jitsu team and also represents the armed forces on the UK BJJA committee. With black belts in Judo and Jeet Kundo, Kevin has an extensive BJJ and MMA coaching experience to elite level athletes, He's an experienced referee and also a close protection and covert surveillance specialist. In short, he's a bad dude. Kev, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, excited to talk to you because you're, you're a bit of an OG, I think. 
Okay, I'm yeah, not, I'm, I'm definitely the, old. I'm not, yeah, I'm okay. definitely old. I, you yeah, take the yeah, O. Yeah, yeah, I'll take the O. <laughs> take the O. So um, can, we, can we do like a bit of your martial arts history and how you got into to training and jiu-jitsu yeah. and all that kind of stuff? How did, how did you start out? Um, I started boxing when I was 11, uh, back in 1986. Um, I was interested in martial arts, uh, Karate Kid and, and all those kind of things on, on, you know, in the movies, uh, Bruce Lee films. So I wanted to do some karate, but the local karate club, um, I don't think it, it took anyone until they're like 12 years old or something like that. Uh, so my dad got me into boxing. I loved the boxing. Um, really enjoyed the boxing training, had a couple of bouts, and I joined the army fairly young at 16 and, and um, the recruiting officer was quite persuasive saying that, you know, you're going to be able to box full time in the army and it, it didn't pan out like that at all. Um, but it was boxing was my first in, intro to martial arts and then um, having met a few karate black belts and things along the way in the army, um, I just felt I was better off sticking with the boxing. You know, they were, no disrespect to karate, but there's a lot of poorly trained karate people out there there's some really really well-trained people but especially early 90s especially during the like the early 90s there was a real mixed bag of really really good karate but really really poor karate as well and, and I think I come across a lot of the poorly trained ones so I felt like in in terms of defending myself boxing was as appropriate as, as anything else so I stuck with boxing for a long time uh, when I left the army um, early 2000s I was looking to stay in shape, um, and I thought I'd try some kickboxing. Did a little bit of kickboxing. I, I kind of get really into stuff if I enjoy it, so I ended up doing loads and loads of kickboxing, searching for like the best instructors. Um, come across across a guy fairly local to me, Neil McLeod, and he'd already started doing some MMA fights. So that's this was 2000, 2001. So we're still within that first 10 years of MMA, I'd seen a little bit of cage fighting, a little bit of UFC, um, but he was already going down that MMA road and that really kind of piqued my interest. And then obviously it become very clear in MMA that if you've got no ground skills, you're not going to have, you know, you're not going to do particularly well. So I found out more about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, someone recommended Mauricio Gomez to me. Um, he was training in Marlebone. So I started mixing up my striking training with with Neil, uh, doing the, the groundwork with with Mauricio. And I think I just kind of fell in love with a jiu-jitsu, you know. Um, not that I was ever going to be good enough to fight in the UFC, but the UFC didn't have any lightweight fighters at the time. I think the lowest weight group was middleweight. Uh, and I sit very light. I always sit between 60 and 70 kilos, that, that kind of window. Um, and I knew also as a white belt, blue belt in, in jiu-jitsu, my ground game wouldn't have been on the, on the level. You know, so I just committed to myself, let me, let me get good at jiu-jitsu. I didn't have any plans to be a black belt or anything like that, but I wanted to be competent. And that takes quite a bit of dedication. So most of my training then become going up to London, training with Mauricio. Through the years, I think like 2003, 2004, Roger really started to be in the UK more, looking to, you know, be here full time. So then training with him regularly. So, you know, by 2004, 2005, I'd probably done four or five years of jiu-jitsu and was regularly training with Mauricio and Roger. Mauricio went back to Brazil for a little bit and I just continued to go through the belts. And again, it was never the plan to be a black belt or run a club. 
because London's a bit of a trek for me, I started training with friends, you know, getting people in, into my flat, put some mats down, work over what we've been doing in London. And eventually that couple of mats in my front room kept growing and growing. I was expecting people to come to London with me to get it direct from the source, but people are busy. You know, they've got families, they've, you know, they've got work and things like that. And it was worked out that I was the one going to London, doing the training, coming back, you know, trying to remember what I could, spread, you know, what knowledge I could. And then, yeah, slowly, slowly we went from two or three of my friends to now we've got, you know, 100, 150 people in the academy. You know, you don't even know everybody's name for the first couple of weeks. It takes you a little, you know, so it's yeah. gone from a very intimate homegrown club to something a little bit more than that now. So do you, do you, um, all of your, all of your students that you've got there, do you kind of know everybody's names once they're training regularly? Once they're training regularly, yeah. Because I, I, I remember Nick um, always saying whenever he used to do uh, blue belt grading, he, he, and he, he would say it kind of as a half a joke. He'd yeah. say, now tonight another nobody becomes a somebody. And right, I, and right, I'll, right, And yeah. I'll bother to learn your name, now you're a blue belt. And, and you know, kind of on the one hand, I always used to think, God, that's a bit harsh. You know, you're training here for like two years and you don't know who you are. But then you, a lot of people drop out, right, along the way. Yeah, there is a high turnover or, or, or can be a high turnover. Um, Nick was always quite ruthless on his gradings. He, he, I, <laughs> he always used to make me laugh with stuff like that. Um, no, I, 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 I mean, I try and get to know people's names. Like genuinely, I think it, it, it helps. I mean, it's not for student retention, but it definitely has a positive effect on people if they walk in the gym and you can call them by yes. their name and say hello. They start to feel part of the gym a lot quicker yeah, that way. Yeah. And for me, I, I just like to try and remember people's names. Sometimes if I've got, you know, 30, 40 people in a class, if at the end of the class I can shake everyone's hand and say their name, it's just a little memory yeah. challenge for me as well. It's a, it's a nice um, it's a nice habit to to form. I'm terrible at remembering people's names, but Smith, who I started the podcast with, who's another of my uh, jiu-jitsu friends, he's he's brilliant at it. He's he's sort of built it into just his normal sort of thought pattern. He meets someone and he I don't know he says the name a couple of times in the yeah. head, and he he just has this brilliant recall of someone's name and usually like one little fact. Yeah. You know, so that, like, hey, if you're hey, attach Kev, something how you doing? To them, How's yeah. the gym going or whatever? Yeah. yeah. Really, really good. Yeah, and I, I find that kind of personal connection is very, very useful for jiu-jitsu because people are nervous as well, you know, because it's quite a big thing to come and start a martial art. So if they feel a little bit more at ease there, they've got at least one person there who knows their name and, and they've got that connection. Then, the, the boss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, you know, so hopefully the training will go go better for them, you know, and they'll stick at it. Cause they've, and, and some people are a little bit lost. You know, they don't have a tribe. They don't have a community. Going somewhere where people know your name, it's the old, um, you know, the line from Cheers, isn't it? You know, going somewhere where everyone knows your name. Yeah. People like that, so yeah. We, I mean, we've talked about that quite a lot on the podcast about the the, the community aspect of a of a jujitsu club, and and you know probably a lot of martial arts clubs, but I think particularly a, a jujitsu club mm. tends to be um, like a real brotherhood, sisterhood. You know, you, yeah. you've got like an extended family, um, and and again, as as we've talked about um, quite a lot, it's having a having a like a strong, close community around you is the number one predictor of long life. Right. It's, it's ahead go. of smoking, you name it, that's the number one. Whenever you look at these communities where 
the average age is, you know, 95 or 105 or whatever, they have these if, sort of communities where they're in each other's houses and everyone knows everyone and you need something, you could call someone and all of that. So, yeah, I think I think the community side of, of the jiu-jitsu is really, definitely. really important. And it sets the tone for me as well. If, if, if the other guys see me welcoming people and calling them by their name and treating them like a human being, there's much more chance that the rest of the gym is going to do that as well. Yeah. Whereas if I'm a bit aloof and cold, that kind of nate, you know, that, 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 creeps into the gym as a culture that when people come we we you know we have to beast you know beast them or and and you know it, it's a rule in the army you know you go into a new gun crew no one's going to treat you know no one's going to talk to you for the first six months or the boss definitely isn't going to talk to you for the first six months you know and that's that's kind of like a rite of passage and then when the next new guy comes no one's going to talk to him but they're going to talk to you now you can do that in the army because you're there anyway you can't yeah. just leave yeah, but for a business and a gym, you know, we're trying we're trying to do something different than than the army. And I think also, you know, I, I think um, maybe traditionally, um, jujitsu was a little bit more like that. Like, let's see if you're tough enough to yep. keep turning up. Because I, I, I'd spoken a few times to um, Eddie Cohn. Yeah, I trained with Eddie a long time ago, and then I got injured and I'd stopped training for like eight nine years. Um, but he was saying when he went to Brazil, he, uh, he, he watched UFC one. He already was doing Thai boxing. He was kind of floating around and then he just thought, right, I'm getting on a plane and go to Brazil. And he said the first, I don't know what he said, six months, nine months, they just said to him, look, you can stay in the academy and clean the mats, but you can't train. You can kind of watch the classes, but you just clean up. And then he said, I just kept going back and cleaning up. And then after a while they said, okay, fine, you can join a class but i think hopefully we kind of move on in terms of what's the what's the best way to do things you know it's i think a lot of those things are just um they're traditions from harder times because yeah. we're in quite kind of soft times these De days right definitely i mean like we've started boxing classes at, at my gym recently and um the coach is really good uh very good at getting the guys to, to train hard and everything like that. Um, but we're always talking about the Soviet style of, of boxing and, and, you know, more about the technique rather than the culture of the training. But, you know, talking about the culture of the training, they could produce a lot of athletes, you know, really, really highly. You know, the Soviet bloc, especially Cuba, used to do really, really well at the Olympics. But if people have to train with you because that's what they've been told by the state they have to do, you can approach how you train them very differently. If they've got the choice to walk out the door and not come back the next day because training is hard, then some people won't come back. If they've got to come back, same again with the, with the military. If you've got them for a year, no matter what, you can really tread on them. And, and, and that pressure can produce some diamonds. But you're going to get a lot of wastage along the way of people who couldn't hack it. I mean, I wonder for every gold medal that these countries produced when they were able to do that i wonder how many hundreds of athletes have got blown out knees ptsd you know like or just couldn't yeah. couldn't hack the training but they found those guys that could and they produce these these real diamonds but um yeah we're, we're not in that culture you know people are mm. coming to us because they want to come to us and then any time they're unhappy, they might say something to you that you can adjust or, or they might just not come back. And, and, and some people won't come back, that's, that's to be expected, but we want, it's meant to be jiu-jitsu for everyone or as many people as possible. So you, you, you can't 
be like that with people. You can't be so hard that some people relish that, but not not most people. Most people want to feel welcomed at, at some level. Yeah, I think I think I mean the thing with with the actual jujitsu training is it's it's quite hard training anyway. You know, it's, it's hard when, enough. Once you get into it's hard it, enough. It's, yeah, yeah. You, you you can't really make it easy. So you can, like you say, at least make it welcoming and sort of a you know a, a nice uh, place to be smashed into the mat yeah. in repeatedly. Yeah, if you're getting smashed into the mat and abused afterwards, you know, or no one's talking to you, then, then you know, unless you really had a goal to achieve, then why would you come back? But yeah. at least if you're having hard training and everybody's nice to you, like, okay, well, that was tough, but they seem okay, so I'll go back and have another tough session. Yeah. And so you got you got a black belt also in judo yeah. and in Jeet Kune Do. Yes. So yeah. when, when did that training fit into the other training? I think um, when I started to get fairly serious about the kickboxing, that's when I'd come across the Jeet Kune Do stuff with, with Neil McLeod and he's connected to Bob Breen. Uh, Bob Breen's got guys like Rick Young and Terry Barnett. These are you know very well, well-known instructors in, in that style. And Jeet Kune Do is from Bruce Lee. So I started not just watching the old films, but, but reading some of Bruce Lee's writings and just talking about it's a good book, that, The Tao of Jeet Kune Do. Yeah, The Tao of Jeet Kune Do, um, Expression of the Human Body, uh, Thoughts of a Dragon, which is some of the interviews he's done and, and just his thoughts on martial arts training. And they seem to have the complete package. You know, MMA was coming along and, and what Jeet Kune Do was doing was they were, they were talking about punching, kicking, wrestling, grappling on the floor. Um, I read somewhere that... The reason Enter the Dragon starts with um, them fighting in the shorts and the, and the gloves was because Bruce Lee said, in the future, people will be wearing less clothing that, so you, you can't grab hold of it. The, the gloves to protect the hands, will you'll need to be able to grapple in them as well, which is why they were those weird kind of finger gloves. And he said most fights will probably finish with a submission on the floor, and he he wins that little contest with oh, an armbar. Well, yeah. Um, so he was already kind of thinking about what I was seeing was changing within martial arts. You know, people thinking more about all aspects of it, not just being a, a boxer or a kickboxer or a wrestler. So the JKD stuff I really liked. Um, under Neil at the time, there wasn't like an official black belt program. You could get a black belt through Bob Breen's, but but at some point Neil said, no, no, you're, you're, you're black belt level um, in this. Which was which was nice, and I was going to a lot of seminars with. Um, there'd always be people like Bob Breen, Rick Young. I've been up to to uh, some seminars up in Edinburgh with Rick, to London with Bob, training regularly with Neil. So I think I, I felt like I had a good good understanding of it, but never did an official black belt grading like they do at Bob's. But but Neil was kind enough to say, "No, you you are." A, black belt level i can't remember what year that was and can you remember like how long you'd been training when you when you got to that level because the thing like, jiu-jitsu is like a long black yeah. belt isn't it it's yeah. like a real yeah much seems to be a lot longer than most I, I think probably i think i got my black belt in judo in 2000 i'd have to check the dan because they keep all their records really good on online i'd have to check but i think it was 2005 and i think about the same time in in jeet Kune Do. so probably five or six years uh, from from the very beginning, I'd already kind of picked up my my, my first Dan in judo and um, recognition from Neil had been that level, and I was probably getting towards the purple belt in jujitsu at that time. I've, yeah, I think. And, and judo, you got to compete for the black belt, right? You have yeah, to, yeah. It's I changed think. a few times through the years, but when I was doing it, 
there's two parts to it. There's a theory and the practical. And um, the theory is usually just showing some positions. They've, they've, they've got it very well laid out. So for blue belt, you'd have to show certain pins, certain throws, certain submissions. Um, and to get the black belt, so you, you go all the way up to brown belt. And then at black belt, you have to compete. Um, actually, I compete for all the color belts. Yeah, if you win a couple of fights, they'll put you up a belt. Right. Um, by the time I got to brown belt, you then have to win 100 points and you get 10 points per win. So essentially 10 wins against other brown belts in judo, you would then have enough points for your black belt. And then there's a day's theory course you do where they do, they go through all the Japanese terminology of the throws and, and, and you know, all these, you know, some rules and, and that kind of stuff. And then you do an exam in the afternoon. And then once you've got both of those, you've got your 100 points and you've done your theory side, then you're eligible for for your 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 black belt and are you still practicing judo no I, I, i'm not i'm not a member of a judo club and i don't go to any jkd classes anymore uh, but at my gym we have wrestling sessions we have uh takedown sessions in the gi um if i'm getting ready for a competition or doing competition class a lot of the rounds will start standing so i get to use some of the skills I got from judo that I've adapted for Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So I probably still spar from standing at least once a week, either gi or no gi style. Um, so I keep my hand in because it's it's an area that's very easy to let fade, you know, your skill fade a, a lot from there because it's tough, you know. No yeah. one likes being thrown. No one likes getting thrown and landed on and, and the risk of injury is higher. And as you get older, the injuries, you really don't want them. So it's easy to kind of shy away from the standing side. So I, I try and force myself to at least once, twice a week or at least start one round standing so I can, you know, just stay comfortable there and not. And if you if you do that that uh, training from standing, are you looking to throw or take down rather than just pulling guard from yeah, standing? Yeah, most of the time. And again, competition-wise, I like to mix it up because if you get known as a guard puller, if you get known as a thrower, then people will start to devise plans specifically for you. Um, but if you don't know, am I going to pull guard on this one? Am I going to try and take down? And, and I think usually for me, obviously being on top on the ground is is the better place to be. So if I can initiate a throw, I'll, I'll usually start and, and just check my opponent's balance. Let's see where they're at. Can I, can I get a throw? Is there an entrance here for a throw? And then if I'm really struggling to really get anything going then the guard pull will probably come, so I'll work from my back. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it seems like a quite uh, an underutilised part of the jiu-jitsu sort of competition mindset, if yeah. you like, is, yeah. is getting, you know, being able to initiate and be two points, three points up and then half guard, uh, side control and then go to mountain or whatever, you're already ahead, right? Yeah. The first I think seconds. it can just be frustrating because you could spend weeks and weeks and weeks working your takedowns and, and, and having some real hard judo-style practices and then the second you, you start the fight, the guy pulls guard yeah. and you've just not wasted, but for this match, you've done some inappropriate training. It hasn't, you know, you've not benefited from that training. So I think that's where the the kicker is. It's like, well, I could do all of this and if they pull guard on me, then I've... So it, it can almost be seen as not a waste of time, mm. but not the priority. And so if you were sort of um, 
trying to balance out like a, an, I don't know if there's such a thing as an average week's training, but say, say you've got someone who's doing four classes a week, who's recreational, but they're looking to compete and whatnot. Would you spend maybe like one a week on stand-up stuff and three a week on 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 ground or something different to that? Um, I think someone like that, I would probably try and have a, a, an element of standing in most of the sessions. So we'd probably start the if we're going to do two or three techniques, one of them would be a standing technique, and then if we're going to spar. We don't need again if they're recreational, but they're going to compete. We don't need to spar all the time from standing. But as we start to get closer to the competition, the last six or eight weeks, okay, you need to be starting. If you're going to do four or five rounds of sparring at the end of each session, let's start the first two from standing, and then we'll bring it back down to the floor just so they can start to get comfortable there, get their game plan going from there, whether it's a guard pull or a takedown, and just start to mix it in like that. And then after the competition ease off that for a little bit, maybe still drill the standing stuff, try and perfect that a little bit. But we don't need to be risking the injuries for a recreational person unless there's a competition on the, on the horizon. So training it regularly, I think. Most of my my standard format for an hour, hour and a half class would be one standing or self-defense technique and one or two ground techniques, ideally covering a similar theme. You know, yeah, so, so you link all, the ground stuff to all, I always where try and link it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I like it to make sense. I think this goes back to teaching in the early days where people would be saying, "Well, why are we on the ground? Why I, why am I between this guy's legs? What's you know?" You'd almost have to justify why this might happen. So very easy. Show him a double leg takedown, which is almost a rugby tackle. So simple rugby tackle. Now you've got a guy between your legs because he took you down and you're on your back. So now we need to be able to do something from here. So I think from the early days, I was always trying to link how we got to the ground so I could justify the training on the ground. Ah, so you might do the, the, the ground techniques maybe from the person who's been taken down, not necessarily yeah. following the initiation. Yeah, you can go either way. Okay, yeah. So if I'm doing a, I mean, if, I'm, if my ground syllabus is guard work this week, then double leg is an easy thing to do because, okay, you've been taken down. Now you're on your back, you've got to recover the guard and work from there. Or if we're doing guard passing, okay, we got the double leg, but now we're in his guard. So now we have to progress past that. So you can kind of link these things together. And do, do you have a preference um, in terms of how, how easy they are to learn and how effective they are for wrestling against judo in terms of BJJ competition? Yeah, um, like refereeing the jiu-jitsu matches and um, judging the, the MMA, I try and pay attention to what is actually working in competition because y you can put all kinds of really, really good-looking drills together. And, but it's, it's, you know, some throws in judo you could teach in a class, but realistically to get that in a competition against a resistant opponent it's a lifetime of work and the judo guys you see pulling that off at the Olympics, you're looking at probably one of the best guys in the world that is just working this one or two throw combination constantly and nothing else. Um, that isn't realistic for, for, for most of us, you know, so you need more of the broad brush techniques, you know, just a, a simple osotogari, a simple double leg, a simple single leg. So I think the difference between my training when I was doing judo 
to trying to mix some of that stuff into the jiu-jitsu, I've had to kind of filter out the more complicated techniques that are, I don't want to say judo specific because people can do them in, in, in all aspects, but there's some that, the double and single leg, they're like, a, that's bread and butter takedown. That will work, I'm not in judo now because they're, they're banned techniques, I believe, but whether you're against a judo player, whether you're wrestling, whether you're doing MMA, whether it's a, a self-defense situation, whether it's a jiu-jitsu match, single and double leg takedowns and a simple hip throw, they will work across the board if they're practiced. So I think probably less technical throwing ability, but very effective and, and stuff you can teach to people in one day and then they can spend just a lifetime perfecting those one or two techniques. I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's something that you know you you that you can actually get good at even coming to it later or not being full-time or whatever. I mean, the, the judo does look very much like you've got to put in a lot of hours to to get that good kind of hip movement and balance and everything. And a lot of it comes from training as a kid. Uh, you know, judo is a great sport for kids. And I think the people who go on to do it at a high level in adulthood were quite often on junior teams. So it's, it's kind of in their DNA by that point. They've, you know, bringing the hip through for the hip throws and stuff. That's... If they learn it when there's a kid, they're they're way ahead. So to start bringing that stuff in as an adult, it is tough. And you do you, have you got kids classes at the yeah. academy? Yeah, and, yeah. And you teach good... like kids. You, were you uh, you done like the national level squad or yeah, something? Yeah. So we had um, for a little while we had an elite, an elite program going. It was started by um, Neil Simpkin from Gracie Baja, and um, he he. Um, wanted to do an elite program. Uh, basically, his kids were very good at jiu-jitsu, his, his son and daughter, and they were going out to the Pan Ams in America, the Pan Kids competitions, where the level is very, very high. And he just didn't feel like there was anything in the UK at that time that was pushing the kids that hard. So he, me and him were friends, we'd worked on some other projects, and he invited me in, another guy, Jimmy Johnson as well, uh, from down in um, Portsmouth Way, Bournemouth Way, um, so between the three of us, we were running elite squad sessions open to all um, affiliations, you know, any team members could come. And for a while, we had a lot of kids that were doing very well and then we'd select them, get them sponsorship. We took teams of over 20 kids out to America a couple of times that, that, that competed and, and all did really well. And from that point on in the UK scene for the kids, if they were on the squad, if they were one of our squad members and... and the gyms that they were members of did a lot of work with them as well. These kids were already pretty good, but we were just bringing more kids together so they could spar more with like-minded kids who were already very good. So it kind of pushed them to the next level, if you like. At every kid's competition I see in the UK after that, on every podium, there's always a kid with one of our patches on. You know, there's either in the gold medal or the silver medal position. So it did kind of push that level uh, we come under a little bit of pushback um just the politics of the sport um people didn't want to train with other certain affiliations or these people wondered why we were the coaches and we weren't putting ourselves out there as being the best kids coaches in the uk we were just trying to do something um so it ran for quite a while maybe a year or two i can't, can't remember exactly but it was very successful when we, we took the kids to Germany, America. They all did really, really well. Produced some um, Pan Am champions, some Naga champions. Um, but it got a little bit political. People were 
pushing back on 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 why these three guys are doing it. You know, you know how it gets. So that's when I think Neil changed it at that point, and then he come up with the elite um, the elite events. So now there's three big kids tournaments: the nationals, the Europeans, and the worlds, all in the UK, run by Neil and his wife. Uh, I help out as one of the referees, and now we don't do monthly training sessions, but we do three big competitions a year. Where and again, you get kids from over twenty countries sometimes coming, very very well prepared. And now kids in the UK can compete against them. You know, your team will have to deal with your elite training. We're not going to get bitten by that again. But here's the competitions to come to. And we do get, you know, hundreds and hundreds of kids come through. And the level is much, much higher now than it was 10 years ago with the kids. And where where are those competitions? Usually uh, usually Birmingham, yeah. Um, Wolverhampton, usually at the... Uh, one of the unis up there. They just spaced out like four months, four months, four months, yeah. sort of through the Yeah, yeah. Through I, think, I think it's just the three a year at the minute. They, they've just started doing an adults one as well. But yeah, it's the kids nationals, kids Euros, kids worlds. And they are, you know, they're packed, you know, hundreds nice. and hundreds of kids. And, and the level is ridiculous. The kids are the, great. The thing as well with with teaching kids, especially to, to, to quite a high level, is all the other sort of um, peripheral benefits they get from it, you know, in terms of discipline and perseverance and getting through adversity and all that kind of stuff. Because I, I, I remember um, Rob Connor was teaching like the juveniles at Mill Hill, and like it, it didn't really matter when I would turn up, they were they were training. But and and you'd think, oh, like that's all these kids do is just train. But then you'd speak to them, and they're like, no, no, I do, I'm doing 16 GCSEs, and I'm yeah. Doing, you know, and they were all like really straight A students as well, just because of that kind of discipline of like you've got an hour to do this, right? You have to do it, and it has to be productive, and you have to get somewhere at the end of it. It's um, I think I think martial arts generally, but but probably with a a competition element for kids is is incredibly important. Yeah, no, they get to have some amazing moments. That I mean, we had a kids competition yesterday, a, a smaller one, a local one. Um, but to see these kids come through, win their fights, winning it with stuff that, that you've been working on specifically with them, and, and they get to have that that high, you know, they get to overcome adversity, they've got the nerves to deal with on the day, they've got their parents to deal with on the day, and then to come through it as the champ, I mean, this is this is a big boost for their confidence. And you can see quite often ones that win a small competition, and they win a slightly bigger competition, and they win a big competition you see them grow as people yeah you know that that real confidence of of oh no actually i'm yeah i can do something it's and and i'm always su- pleasantly surprised by the level of dedication of some kids you know some of them are, are dialed in and they want to be there and, and they want to improve and you know you get to the point where they're asking you when the next training session is you know so now i'm like okay i'm gonna have to be more disciplined myself and put on some extra sessions and make sure i'm about for it and you know we we now at, at mine, we, we do a monthly elite squad session for our kids. And this is something we've we've brought in recently where now every month the kids that are serious and dedicated and want to compete will put on a session for you. But the level is going to be a little bit higher. We're going to push you a little bit more. There's going to be a little bit more conditioning work in it and there's going to be more sparring in it. And But they turn up. They don't care. They, they That's what they want. They want that hard session. So, you know... 
they, they, they start pushing you in the end. You know, they're so dedicated, some of them. And, and what, what kind of age groups are you, are you dealing with with the kids? We start about four, you know, but this, these are, you know, very entry-level classes. We're, we're, we're making sure they can sit down and listen and stand on the line in a straight line and do their breakfalls. And, you know, so at four years old, they're not doing tons and tons. We, we, we try and improve their base, a little bit of stranger danger kind of stuff, breaking grips and, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Um, but I guess... It's always just that pre-adolescent age, I guess, 11, 12 years old. That's that's when, if someone's going to be dedicated, you can start to see it. And as they get into those teens, you're like, oh, yeah, they've, they really want to do this. So um, probably, yeah, no earlier than nine years old for the really dedicated ones. Once they get into double figures, if they want it, you'll be able to tell. Yeah. Nice. So um, you... Going going back a little bit, you were you went into the army at sixteen mm. and were boxing and yeah. kickboxing and whatever. How how long did you did you stay in the army? Uh, ten years. So, so I joined in out. I joined in ninety two, and I finished my last tour just beginning of two thousand and three. Is that like the kind of the shortest run you can do? do you, no, no, you, you can do, do you can do three years. Okay. Yeah, it's usually three years from your eighteenth birthday. So if you join like I did at sixteen. Um, I think I did a year and a half for the Queen, so they, they, there's no pension for that bit. You're a junior soldier. Uh, I was at a, 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 an adult regiment, you know. So you, as a junior soldier, you tend to do a year's worth of training. So you do a year, almost like a borstal, 12 months of, of army training, and then you go into an adult regiment. So I went into my adult regiment at 17, um, but then from 18 years old, I could do f uh, a minimum of three years. So you do two years... You can give your notice, and then it's a year's notice, right? And then you can leave. So three years is usually the minimum, unless you've been out of training or get injured, or you know. But generally, three years is the minimum. And so, how was how was the army? You got any? Uh, interesting yeah, no, the, the army was. Yeah, I mean, it's a love hate relationship. I, I, I mean, I left the army in two thousand and three, so that's twenty years ago now. So everything's rose tinted glasses now. So now, at this point in my life, I love the army. Right. You know, I had a great time. It was the best thing I ever did. But talking to my friends, there was a lot of, I can't stand this. I'm getting out. When I can't believe we're going away again. What another Bosnia tour? Oh my god, my wife's going to kill me. You know, all all these conversations that men the lads used to have. I think I spent a lot of time hating it and wanting to get out. But now looking back, you're like, no, that was, you know, being cold, wet and hungry underneath a, a bivy in um, Salisbury Plain was some of the best times of my life now. But at the time, I, I'd have switched it for anything. Yeah. You know, so it is a, an odd thing. But um, I, I was quite lucky with my service, really. The junior leaders was interesting because you're, you're so young and, you're, you're, you know, you're just there for a, a year and they've got you and, and you, get, you get a high level of training. So we got to do lots of good stuff. Uh, my first regiment was a horse artillery regiment. We, we didn't have horses. We had artillery, but it's it's called the horse artillery because it's a, a tradition thing. And then they were asking for volunteers for an air mobile unit that was part of a rapid reaction force. Nothing, not special forces or anything like that, but it sounded a lot more exciting than what I was doing, which was basically polishing boots and cleaning guns. Uh, so I joined this unit called uh, 19.5 Battery, part of the AMF like a rapid reaction force for Europe. So we're, we're an international, part of an international force, um, working in Norway, because that's where 
the Russians would come through the northern flank or working in like Sarakamas Desert in Turkey, the southern flank of Europe. So that, that was our areas. So I spent a long time overseas. It's all air mobile, so you're flying around in helicopters, they're dropping you off and all very apocalypse now type stuff you know in your head you you know so that was that was good fun and uh it's right in the middle of the the bosnian conflict and they needed lightweight artillery that was air mobile to operate in bosnia as part of an international force so we fitted the bill um sarajevo gets very cold in the winter we was an arctic warfare unit so we were the perfect fit for it so from 95 to 99 um spent quite a lot of time in bosnia i think almost three years in bosnia um you know six month tour here back home for six months eight month tour out there for nine months come back you know all the, so in and out fairly regularly bosnia seemed like our our regular haunt for a bit and probably from 95 to 97 there's still quite a quite a bit going on there quite a bit of unrest i think the main war fighting had finished but there were still factions fighting over that last little bit of land grab and then there was uh riots over bread supplies and then when they start moving people back into the houses because when i first went there was no civilians there at all it was only men of fighting age and very very stubborn old people who just weren't moving even if there was a war um, but when they started moving people back into the villages sometimes they'd put people in their neighbor's house but the neighbors were the ones that had killed half their family do you, do you know what i mean so you'd be not only were you trying to move back into this area but now the guy you've got a serious blood feud with is living in your house and maybe you're living in a house that you think's inferior now to your art so there was lots of like civvy mini riots and and uh unrest and a lot of weaponry still laying around so you know things would escalate very very quickly but but not like the kind of war fighting that guys were doing in Afghan and Iraq. It was very getting caught in crossfires, a little bit of sniper fire, stuff like that, basically. But so, were you? Did you? Did you have sort of times when you're over there when you were actually fighting, or it was more kind of peacekeeping and our role? Our and... role was so. First of all, we was with the UN, which was all peacekeeping, and you have your rules of engagement. And uh, rules of engagement for the UN are very, very strict. I mean, to the point where. More so than the British Army yeah. normally would be? Yeah, so to engage with anyone, you had to be absolutely sure that your life was in danger or someone's life was in danger imminently. And and it was very restrictive and often you felt like your hands were tied. Um, there was, there's been, I've, I've watched documentaries because at the time you're kind of in it and I, Bosnia was a complicated conflict because it was a civil war and there was many, many layers to it. So since I've left the army, I've, I've tried to understand what happened and what... So there's actually documentaries about UN soldiers that stood by, I think it's Srebrenica, and there was a massacre, and they didn't feel like they had the rules of engagement to stop it. So as a United Nations soldier, you, you're hands tied behind your back is a common thing I, I would hear people say. Um, on our second or third tour, we were, we were NATO troops. The, the Americans got involved and they started to bomb the Serbs. The lads hit the Serbs off of Matt Igman with, with the artillery. Um, so we could be a little bit more heavy-handed. Um, but actual full contacts, no. I've been stuck in a village called Kuprez. We, got, we were under sniper fire in Kuprez where we had to get the infantry to come in and, and, and take the snipers out because, you know, we were stuck. Um 
and then we accidentally got put on a minefield once the 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 officers, the grown-ups, hadn't done their homework. There was a miscommunication. We got put on a field. Turned out to be a minefield. So like, okay, nobody move. We're going to figure you, this out. How did you realise we're in a minefield? So it, it was the winter. So a layer of snow everywhere. And because I was in the artillery, we'd usually take over a field. We'd have six gun pieces, six 605-millimetre six guns spread out in a field with our command post and, and the soldiers. So probably 100 guys on a field with six large artillery pieces. So they'd obviously found this field that was ideal for us. We got told, yep, that's your gun position. So we moved onto the field and it was probably five or ten minutes after we'd been there, an engineer officer come past and he got out of his truck and started waving his hands and he had actually just come to put mine tape around that field to indicate it was a minefield. So we'd got there before the engineers and moved on. So grown-ups had a, had a conversation and I think it went along the lines of, okay, everybody just, because there was snow on the ground, it's like, just retrace your steps and get back in your trucks and sit and wait until we figure this out. So we sat there for a couple of hours in our trucks while they had conversations. And I think one option was to bring some helicopters in and airlift us out, but then there's concerns about the downdraft of the rotor blade setting off anti-personnel mines and stuff. So in the end, we very tentatively packed away our equipment only, so you unpacked and like set we'd already up. yeah we had the cam nets up and and we had the we've got these things in the artillery called aiming posts and they have to go out 50 meters and 100 meters and they used you line them up on a on a bearing and then you can use them as a reference point to because the people at the other end who want the bombs they're going to give you grid references and coordinates so then you get lined up based on that so you can use these aiming points as a, a bearing reference basically so these go out 100 meters well, when we come to packing up the kit, there are only two posts. So you think, oh, we'll just leave them. But we have these little lights on them that are, um, they're called uh, Trilux lights. And they, they're, they're very expensive and they're what's called a starred item in the army. If you lose them, it's, it's a problem. So we had to re go and get the aiming post. So you're now walking out 100 metres in a minefield, just walking in your own footsteps. So that was a new guy's job to put them out and it was a new guy's job to go and get them and then drive back out only using the tracks that we'd come in on because we're in over snow vehicles uh bv 206s so that was a very very tense couple of hours very very slow moving and 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 um you know looking back you're like wow that that could have been problematic you know because there was the the two main things in bosnia was mines and snipers and and as the years went on that become less and less and it it become a fairly easy operational tool towards the end of the 90s. Not not much going on at all. Um, but yeah, for between 95 and 97, there was we were moving around the country a lot. There was these little incidents, like I say, you know. Um, I think probably the, the minefield was quite... That still sticks with me now. Um, but getting caught in crossfires, you'd have like Serbian troops, Croatian troops. There's meant to be a truce, but they still take pot shots at each other. And if you happen to be driving through where they're taking pot shots, often that fire would start to drift towards your convoy just because you're NATO or UN troops and you're an easy target. From for both sides. From both sides, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, at the time it's not comical, but now looking back it's almost comical, you know. Yeah. So Wow. So did you did you have any other deployments? Is that what it's called apart from yeah, Bosnia? Yeah, uh, went to Kosovo in two thousand and one. So I'd I'd actually started to leave the army and look for a civilian job and then 9-11 happened and call out papers come out for people to re-enlist and everything so I decided that 
things didn't look like they were panning out that well for me. So I decided to go back and where they put the guys that were still in full time, they put them out to Afghan and, and in 2003 to Iraq. They used guys like myself who had just left, just come back in to fill the gaps in, in places like Bosnia and Kosovo. And I didn't want to go back to Bosnia just because I'd done so much time there. So I went to Kosovo instead as a, as a courier, just picking up mail from the embassy in Macedonia and then bringing it back to Kosovo, Pristina, and they'd fly out of Pristina airfield into, into London. And no hairy instance with that? No. Um, no, Kosovo was seemed a lot less than um, than Bosnia, a lot smaller conflict. Um, but it was a lot it was a lot moodier. Like people weren't pleased. I remember people weren't pleased to see I got bricked a lot in the trucks. We had a guy uh, killed, they dropped a concrete block on his, his truck. I, I was I replaced him. It was just before I, I got out there as a young parachute regiment guy uh, going into Macedonia and, and they we had an area called Bomb Alley and they would just come up onto the bridges and every two or three hundred meters there'd be like a motorway style gantry bridge and you'd just get pelted with rocks going through and and when I started going through it we had the windscreen meshes that we could pull down and the trucks were a bit heavier but when when the first few guys were going through they didn't have much protection at all and it, it cost one of them quite dearly so but it was a lot they weren't pleased to see you. I definitely got the impression in Kosovo we, we weren't very welcomed at all so not so much military style action as in guns and bombs it, it was you know you'd be driving along and you, suddenly your, your, your truck would just be getting pelted with rocks wow yeah so how long were you there in uh, Kosovo eight months and 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 then was that coming up then to that was pretty coming much out again? yeah because everything was gearing up in Afghan and Iraq, um, and I was working with a, a, a group of, of soldiers in Macedonia, uh, yeah, Macedonia and Kosovo that were very switched on guys, and they were gearing up to go out to Afghan and do some very as a soldier, they were going to be doing the kind of work you want to be doing, um, but my son had just been born. Um, my son was maybe a year old and I, I'd had a bad day um, in, in Macedonia. I come home, managed to get to a phone and I phoned him up and he was only young, but him just blurbering down the phone, it kind of melted my heart a little bit. And I knew that if I went back into the army fully and got into the units that I wanted to get into, I was going to be away a lot. I could already tell that the whole Afghan and uh, thing was going to go on for a long time. Um, you know, as as a soldier wanting to do soldiering stuff, that's where you wanted to be. But I could see this wasn't I wasn't going to be in and out. It was going to be a long ongoing thing, and I just didn't want to be away from him. You know, I'd, this Kosovo was the first time I'd been away and had a kid. All the other ones I was pretty much young, free, and single. So you're just out there doing what you do. Um, but it was different. It was different once I had Keenan. So um, that was really what made me start thinking about leaving the army properly. And when I come home from Kosovo, I was doing some judo and one of the parents there, he was in the fire brigade. And he said, look, we're, we're, we're recruiting for part-timers. You're in good shape. He was an ex-Marine, so we had a bit of a military affinity. And uh, I tried out for the part-time fire service and got into that pretty easily. And then after a year and a half, I went full-time. So that then kind of gave me that, I don't want to say adrenaline buzz or anything like that. I don't think I'm an adrenaline, but it gave me the fix 
that was missing from the army, that kind of operational yeah. professionalism. You're going to go into something dangerous, but you're going to be trained for it and you're going to... And, and still like being in a unit, right? Still in a, in a unit. Like a the, the, the banter around the tea table in the fire brigade was, you know, it was like being home again almost. So a lot of the guys are ex-army as well or ex-military. So I think maybe if I hadn't got into the fire service, the pull of the army and everything that's going on because my, my friends were deploying and I was getting all the war stories from them and, you know, you get a bit of green-eyed monster. I think if I hadn't got into the into the fire service, even with my son, I may have been pulled back. You know, I had quite a few people saying, you know, you need to come back, you need to go on this course, you need to do this, you need to work with this unit, you're going to love it. Um, but I think the fire service kept me out because uh, I was I was at a station in High Wycombe, not that far from here, probably the busiest station in Buckinghamshire. There's a lot of, you, first of all, you've got the M40 motorway, so yeah. a lot of car smashes, and then there's some quite run-down places in Wycombe. They're the places that tend to have the fires. Mm. People can't afford a smoke alarm, that kind of thing. Maybe more than one family living in a house, cooking on cala gas. There's, there's more chance of things going wrong. So you, you, we were quite, I mean, I remember my first few years at Wycombe, we were very busy and I was... I was getting the fix I wanted. I felt like I was doing something worthwhile, you know. Yeah. And how long did you do that for? The I did 10 in the fire brigade as well. So I got um, got into the part-time fire service in Ellsbury in 2003. 2004, I went to Morton in the Marsh Fire Service College as a full-time recruit. And then um, end of 2004, started at High Wycombe Fire Station. And I, I left... I was at Ellsbury. I was back to Ellsbury full time by the time I finished, and I left the fire service in 2013. So again, ten years. So 92 to 2003 in the army, 2003 to 2013 in the fire service, and 2013 was when I got my full time jujitsu academy going. So, so you, were you training sort of pretty steadily all the way through martial arts? From um, during the army was just boxing, right? You know, just boxing. Any time there was a chance to try out for a boxing team. Anytime there was a, uh, even just some in-house training, even just in the barracks, if someone's got a set of gloves hanging up, you know, so I was, uh, boxing was the only thing I really did in the army. Um, but from 2000 onwards was the the martial arts stuff and, and through the tail end of the army, I was training, I'd already had one MMA fight by the time I went to Kosovo um, and then all through the fire service, just because of their shift patterns, I was able to train get to London regularly, compete, you know, they like you to be in shape, so it wasn't an issue me training hard. So, yeah, all the jiu-jitsu was done pretty much while I was in the fire service. And and uh, so when did you open the academy? It started in my, my house right from the beginning, but um, proper full-time, 2008 we started dedicated classes, and then 2013 was when I brought the build in, that become the place we're at now. So were, were you just like in a rented hall? Or yeah, yeah. Um, sharing a space with another martial arts gym with Neil Neil McLeod. Um, he was teaching JKD and a little bit of MMA. And then I think it was a Tuesday night, I would do a jiu-jitsu session. And that started fairly regularly, Tuesdays and Saturdays or Sundays. And that started fairly regularly in 2008. But proper full-time dedicated academy, 2013 was the the big move because I can't even remember what was going on but there's some political stuff going on in the fire brigade people were talking about going on strikes there was quite a bit of animosity uh, they were talking about taking the beds away on night shifts they were talking about 
changing the hours. Ooh, and and I had enough kind of students at that point and this, this building had become available. It looked doable. I was like, you know what? I, I don't need someone telling me because we signed contracts. You know, we, we I'd signed up to this shift system and this pension system, which I wouldn't have been able to change. And then I, I just felt a drop of a hat. They were looking at changing because it suited them. I was like, Do you know what? I don't really want someone being able to dictate to me like that. I've got an opportunity to do my own thing here. It might work, it might not. But if I don't try now, I'll never know. So, And I've done 10 years at that point. I, I wasn't the most experienced, you know, firefighter in the world. Hadn't done all the jobs. But I kind of knew what I was getting. I knew, you know, I, I, I'd done most of what you were going to come across, you know, flat fires, house fires, um, the car smashes, people trapped, this kind of stuff. So I knew what to expect. And I also knew that this management system wasn't going to go away. Even if it didn't come this time, they'd always, it's public service, right? And, and the fire service, you're paying a lot of money for those trucks to sit there and really the aim of the game is that you hope they just sit there and no one has ever has a fire. So, you know, if you haven't had any fires for a year, your fire station might get cut mm. because they don't need you. But then when someone has a fire that one time and there's no local fire station, you know, a lot of the part-time stations in Buckinghamshire all got shut because they weren't attending enough incidents. Mm. Um, but then you have one big incident, you've shut them, it's too, you know, so I always kind of knew that these, this public se sector type cuts and that kind of management style of working for a local government or the government, I was like, it's always going to be like this. I'm always going to have to bite my tongue at some point with something I don't like. And I just felt I had the opportunity to not have to do that. So yeah. that, did you say that was 2013? 2013, was yeah. Did you, was that when you opened under Roger Gracie? As, yeah. As an I, RGA? I, yeah, I think we were RGA Ellsbury from 2008 because we had regular sessions. Um, and then I, I rented a semi full-time place for about a year and a half to see a bit of market research, basically, see if, 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 people would train regularly and whether there was any legs in the idea of having a, an academy in Ellsbury. Um, and it, and it, it looked good, you know, it was, it was looking good. So when I made the move, it was like, you know, talk to Roger, we're going to be RGA Bucks, you know, um, he was happy with everything. Um, and that you already were at a black belt level at that point? Yeah, I got my black belt 2011. Okay. Yeah, so maybe two years after I got my black belt was when, and this building was just a building I'd been, riding past on the way to work at a at a fire station and I was like oh I wonder if I could do something with that track down the owner did a, a deal with him because you know fire brigade wages I didn't have a couple hundred grand sat in my back pocket so had to do a deal with him got control of the unit then got the banks involved once they could see the viability of the business and then brought it off him for a, a, a loan from the bank oh nice so you bought the building out right yeah oh, yeah fantastic. and I built built my flat above it yeah. So I live above the gym, gym's downstairs. And that's what made it doable, not not having an outside property that's a mortgage and then you've got all those costs of living stuff yeah. and then you've got the building for the gym. By putting it all into one, it's a bigger risk if things don't work out, but at the same time, much lower overheads. And in yeah, a couple of years... logistically, like, easier to deal with, right? Definitely. Like, there's one roof. There's one like, roof to one, fix. There's yeah. one boiler. There's, you know, there's, you know, so it's... It works really well for that. And in a couple of years when it's all paid off, you know, I, I won't have to pay for a flat. I won't have to pay for my business. It will just be yeah, 
you know. And, and did you do? Were you long enough in the army and the fire brigade to get a pension? From, yes, from yeah, that? yeah. So my my military pension was absorbed by the fire brigade or the local council pension. So you, I, I transferred whatever units I had across to them, and then when I left the fire brigade, that was then repackaged and that sat somewhere wait on a shelf waiting for me. Or I think you can go to some more uh, pension companies that will then buy that. You don't want to do that, right? No, no. no that, those, those sort, that's the one good thing about those um, public sector yeah. is the pension, yeah, right? Yeah, it wasn't enough for a full pension, but definitely at least a half pension between between the two lots of service. So, you know, when I'm old enough, state pension and whatever's... Yeah, because I, I, look, I was looking at private pension... Six months ago, something like that. Was, you know, you just go on the calculator yeah. on board. Let me see what's what's there. And I think I think the most it let you put in your pot to buy an annuity was a million pounds, like on the calculator. So I was like, let me put in a million pounds and see what. And I think taking a pension from fifty five because that's the earliest you can take it. I'm fifty, and I was like, well, it'd be nice to retire yeah. in five years. It's not going to happen, but it would be nice. So let me. You get like twenty grand a year out yeah. of a million quid. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like how much do you need in a private pension now to actually live on? You need yeah, no, it's, it, I mean, and I'm not very au fait with that that side of things anyway. I don't, I don't tend to pay too much attention to it, but I know it's sat there. So I'll get state pension plus that, and then plus anything else I sort out for myself. But I'm hoping that the gym will yeah. will really be. So, do you have how many instructors do you have uh, teaching there? Uh, I've got two dedicated so one dedicated kids instructor ian and one dedicated um adults instructor dan um this is for jujitsu for jujitsu and then we've got uh, a boxing coach and a kickboxing coach and an mma coach so anab is the boxing coach uh rich miller is the kickboxing coach and martin uh Ziwaka is the mma coach and then between all of us and then i've got um some good black belts have got their black belts from me and they're keen to teach. So like Bartek has been running a nogi session regularly because he, he, he really likes the nogi. Um, so we get guys coming and out. But like full-time jiu-jitsu coaches, I've got myself, my son does some, and then I've got Dan doing the adults and Ian doing the kids. And then we've got other people on the peripheries that do other and bits and pieces. Have you got jiu-jitsu classes every day? Every day, yeah. Morning, lunch, evening? Yes, yeah, Pretty yeah, much. yeah. So on a Monday, we've got the early morning class, we've got the afternoon class, and then the kids' classes, and then the evening class. So full day, really. So, so the the other thing that I wanted to to, to talk to you about, which was on your little uh, bio on the on the website uh, page that you sent me, was about the close protection mm. and covert surveillance. Mm, yeah. Talk to me about that. Okay, that's that. I'm fascinated to with this um, kind of whole world. Well, I always thought it'd be, especially once I kind of understood jujitsu. I was like, man, anybody in any kind of industry where you violence might be a, an issue should know some jujitsu. And I was thinking police and military and doormen. So I always had this idea that, man, I should have local doormen coming to me and learning jujitsu. It'd be good for them and it'd be good for the clients. You know, rather than beating somebody up, they could actually take them out and 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 look after them a little bit. Um, so I always had this idea that I'd be able to train dormant, but that's all regulated by the SIA. They have their own packages that, that they have to do. They don't like external type violence because they don't understand it, and they're, they're you know they're worried about 
people getting hurt. So it was always a sticking point because I wasn't an SIA instructor. I couldn't work with a doorman. Anyway, at some point, while the whole COVID opening and closing, opening and closing thing was going on, I had a local guy come to me, ex-army, uh, Jamie, and he was an SIA close protection instructor. And he had close protection experience from Afghanistan um, where people were going out to make agent contacts in marketplace. I think I believe these were the scenarios and they needed protection while they meet with local people with information. So fairly high-end stuff, fairly, you know, real, real, real close protection stuff. And he was experiencing that. He explained to me what he'd been, been doing and he had these qualifications and he was an instructor. He was a firearms instructor in the army. Um, so he had all these qualifications and was starting a company. And, and he said to me, you know, looking at doing doorman, because doorman are level two security and close protection is level three. And if you do the level three, you can be a close protection operative or you can be a doorman. Or So I was like, brilliant, that sounds great. Um, I'm I'm, a, I'm interested in the close protection stuff. I don't know a great deal about it, but I'm interested. Um, plus the doorman thing links up with what ideas I'd already had. Um, so we come to an agreement. And he started running close protection courses in the gym. Uh, we decided to give him some extra unarmed combat, self-defense type stuff that I would, would help with. Um, and we started running close protection courses. And... I see the courses, I see the stuff they're doing, I was very interested, so I jumped on one of the courses and got my qualification myself. And the, the close protection industry is a funny one because everybody thinks you're going to be guarding Whitney Houston in bodyguard, right? You know, you're going to be that guy, but it's not really like that. It can be anything from sitting in a rich person's empty house while they're away, um, high-value goods. The, the chances of being straight in as a personal protection officer, that's the person right next to the celebrity or the... The, the principle um, that doesn't happen that takes quite a few years and, and and there's a lot of Mickey Mouse close protection businesses out there as well so you, a lot of times you can do this close protection course and end up being a glorified security guard and, and some security companies they they would rather have a level three qualified person even though because they're just a little bit more switched on you know so you might still be doing basic security guard work but they wanted a close protection guy because they're just a little bit more more savvy they've done a longer course um so mainly with the training side being on all these courses being a a, a bit part on the courses and and I, I did a teaching qualification i did my first aid qualification so all close protection guys have to have first aid qualifications so i now do the first aid part of the course been on enough of these courses now to, to see how they run and just really help with the admin of the, the courses um did a little bit of residential security work a little bit of close protection stuff um but on the courses you do an element of surveillance because if any serious criminal is going to attack a high value target they're going to do reconnaissance it's when we're not dealing you know if we're talking high level crime we're not dealing with someone who's just opportunist we're, we're dealing with someone who's going to have a planning cycle they're going to start to follow you they're going to start to get to know your routines they're going to take pictures they're going to create some intel and they're going to come up with a plan to attack you so as a close a good close protection operative we'll be aware of doing counter surveillance and seeing and is anybody watching us and that side of the course has really piqued my interest i was like because 
an opportunity I had, which I didn't take while I was in the army, was to do some work in Northern Ireland. And there's uh, groups within the army that work plain clothes. You have to pass some courses to, to get on it. But it was in, it was interesting work following, it was the IRA at the time, but IRA, INLA, gunmen, you know, doing surveillance on them. And that's quite high level stuff. So I was interested. So I found that you could specialise in covert surveillance. And there's a group in, in the UK, they used to be called ISS, but they're now called Taito, with a guy called Pete Jenkins. And he really is seen as the guru of covert surveillance, former Marine. People from all around the world send him guys to work with. He works with some um, very high-level uh, covert surveillance groups in the US who specialise in, in insurance frauds and things like that. He does a lot of animal rights stuff, anti-hunt stuff, so hiding in, in, in the farms and covert cameras in bushes to, to, to make sure that the people doing the hunts are following the new rules and not doing illegal hunting or, or and there's badger baiting and all this kind of stuff still goes on. So he does he he's he's world renowned and I managed to get on a course with him and I did two and a half weeks up in, in Yorkshire um, doing a covert surveillance course. It was Pete, a former RUC um, covert surveillance operative who worked on they call it the teams in the RUC and they were were Loyalist gunmen, IRA gunmen, they were following these guys around very close quarters with, with those guys in Belfast and other places. So he was, and he'd been doing that for over 20 years. So he was a very, very experienced operative. And then another guy who wasn't really clear where he's from. He seemed ex-military. He was just one of the instructors on the course, but he was a little bit cagey about where he had worked and hadn't worked. So very, very knowledgeable guys, really, really good credentials. And I did a course with them, did very well on a course, passed it, and... Um, off of the back of that, I've ended up in a couple of covert surveillance working groups, basically WhatsApp groups where jobs come in. We need an operative in Birmingham. We need an operative in... Oh, we need a tracker taken off of a vehicle in London. We need a tracker putting on a vehicle over here. And you can just pick up jobs because you, you have to have the right connections and qualifications to get into the groups. But then you're basically freelance. So um, sometimes it's just a vehicle check. Can someone check if this car is parked on the drive in Luton? You know, so I'm just looking for jobs if if they're close by because I live in Ellsbury, which is a HP postcode. Anything HP, I just bid on it straight away and usually just go and do it. And it can be anything from I was following a married guy around the NEC at a motorbike show because he was meant to be meeting up with his bit on the side there. So I tracked him him for a day. Um, did some work on a, a house in Hayes where th th there was a some of this stuff's funded by charities. I'm not even sure what at that point I didn't even know what. The background of the job was I just had my targets to watch and if they left the house to follow and see where they went and then just compile a report and pass it up the chain and you get paid individually. And so do, like you, do you say you, you bid on jobs so so literally you would say, I can do this and I will do it for this amount of money? They usually say the pay rate. Right. They usually say this is a job, this is a pay and when I say you bid on it, you, you basically send them a, a direct message saying I'm available right. and they probably get two or three ping in, you know. And, and they just pick either randomly or, or operatives they've worked with before. And to be honest, most of the time, if I see a job, I, you know, if I ping straight away to them, usually it comes up, they go, yeah, okay, this is the details of the job. Sometimes there's background. It's a matrimonial case. It's a animal cruelty case. It's a fraud case. Um, but sometimes no background at all. Yeah, can you just... So I did one in, um, in Luton. They were just wanting to see if there was a car 
a certain car parked on this driveway. I guess someone had said they were going to be somewhere and someone else was checking up on them to make sure they were there. So this is sort of like a private business where yeah. I, I, for example, can go to them and say, hey, look, I'm worried about Yeah, most, so most so. of the people putting the jobs into the group are private investigate. Uh, in right. private investigation companies, so like Titan Investigations, um, uh, I think there's Anderson and Co, uh, UK National Private Investigations. So quite big companies. You'd find them on Google. So if you wanted to hire a private investigator, they would probably have a dedicated private investigator for your case, and then he would need covert surveillance operatives to go and do the legwork for bits that he couldn't pick up, or and he's just being fed information by operatives like me and then he'll compile the case and give give the client the details that, that are relevant. Yeah, yeah, they were here, they met up with this person, here's a video or the car was there or there was no car there, here's my guy's photographs time stamped and, and it's, that. Like, it's, it's like 20% less glamorous than I thought you were going to say it was. <laughs> I mean, it still sounds interesting. but It's, it's interesting work. So, I mean... Varied, it, right? It's uh, it's very varied. Um, you could actually be following live targets, getting on buses, getting on trains. That's always quite good work. If if you're working in, in a team, if you're working... My, my thing, I think, from both the military and the fire service, that it, it, it's that operational... Or that ability to operate professionally under pressure. So I'm not just chucking my stuff in the car. I'm, my cameras are charged. My SD cards are all ready. They're all clean. Um, everything's done properly. I, I kind of like that professional side of getting things right for a job. And then I like working with professional people. Like, so if I'm with with some another covert surveillance operative and we're following a guy around London and we've got good comms with each other and we're keeping him under tabs and we haven't lost the target, that's that's very rewarding to me and, and, you know, depending on the awareness of the um, subject, I mean, if they're unaware, it's a fairly easy follow. But if, if they're a, a serious criminal, they can be hyper aware. So then, you, you know, mo most of the time this that kind of stuff's done by the police. But there are people out there that the police have gone, sorry, there's not much of a case here for us, but they've got their own funds they will fund their own case. And then if they can get enough of a case together, then they can take that to the police and go, here you go. And then that they'll start to go on that. So you don't tend to be following high-level criminals. Most of my work is insurance fraud or benefit fraud or, or matrimonial. So fairly low-hanging fruit in the terms of covert surveillance, but still enough to kind of pique your interest. You yeah. Know? It's a little bit of adult hide-and-seek, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. So, what what's your thoughts on um, the kind of uh, combatives and real life confrontation against martial arts training? So, the Jeet Kune Do, the Judo, Jiu Jitsu, and and boxing and other stuff that you've done. How do you how do you think they translate, and 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 how do they not translate well in in terms of real life situations um i mean it's a very common conversation right would this work on the street or that wouldn't work on the street and but I've, i think first of all if you're constantly getting into violent confrontations in the uk so much so that that you have to study martial arts in lifetime terms then you should probably question 
where you're walking around, when you're walking around there, how you're, you know, how you're you're presenting yourself. Because I, I honestly believe I could walk around for the next 20 years and never get into another fight now because of what I know. If someone's staring at me on the train, I don't need to stare back. I can just get up and change carriage. I don't need to walk around Holston at one in the morning on my phone. You know, I can avoid these situations. And, and then the, the, the chances of getting into a, a random attack is very rare. So I think, you know, first of all, people get it, get a bit confused that, you know, you keep getting fights in the pub because you keep going out and getting drunk. If you stop going out and getting drunk, I can guarantee you, you won't get in on a fight on a Friday night. You won't need to decide, do I need to box? Do I need to kickbox? Do I need to do jiu-jitsu to defend myself? And you need to stop going out and getting pissed. Yeah. And, and, and getting into, into situations with other people that are drinking. That would be my first thought on, on how people react on, on the street. And then there's people that have been in violent situations either because of their childhood and how they in the areas they grew up or the countries they grew up in and there's people that have never really been in a violent situation who who don't really comprehend what that's like the first thing is you're going to get a massive adrenaline dump and it's going to freeze you to the spot unless you're used to having massive adrenaline dumps so the first thing is everything you think you're going to do, you're probably not going to do. You're probably going to be scared. You know, I've, I've been in violent situations most of my life. I'm from a good home. I'm from a good family. I'm not from a... But through being in the army, through living in the barracks, through the martial arts, um, I've kind of been in a lot of violent situations. But if someone grabs me on the shoulder while I'm at a cash point... I'm going to get a massive adrenaline dump. You know, it's, it's going to be scary. You know, so this, this, that's the first thing people don't... They, they watch John Wick and their heart rate's at 80 and they think their heart rate would be at 80 if they were doing that stuff. But it, it's not the case. You're going to freeze, probably, unless you, you know, really practice this stuff. So in some terms, it doesn't matter whether they do Jeff Thompson Animal Day stuff where they're actually having almost fights or whether they're doing um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu where they're just rolling uh, and, and not really thinking about self-defense neither of them is going to you know what i mean some people are just not going to be ready for that level and then situation violent encounters on the street are, are different every time so how you react to it and what would have worked you know whether boxing would have worked whether jiu-jitsu would have worked it, it's it's all very different every time so i don't even think you can say this one's better or that's better or this translates better i think Addressing it in your mind, addressing it in the classes and saying, look, you know, if you pull guard because you're getting ready for a jiu-jitsu match, that might not be the best plan A in a street fight. Well, that's how it should be addressed, you know. But um, I don't think you can get ready for these these things. You know, someone, I mean, I don't know, out of their mind on drink or drugs who's just got their beer in a bonnet because they're having a, a bad day and, and now they're coming for you. I mean, how do you deal with that? Do you take them down? Do you punch them in the face? I mean, it's it's really going to be how you feel at that moment and what you can get going. I think, you know, logically, if you start punching and kicking people, you might end up being the person who gets in trouble. And then, and I've had this in, in, in my personal life where a violent situation occurs, you defend yourself in your mind to the point of defending yourself but then the police aren't happy that with the way you did it. So 
now you're the one in trouble. And it's very difficult then to explain use of minimum force, preemptive strikes, feeling threatened, feeling in, in fear of your life. I mean, um, it's very difficult. So in those terms, you'd be much better off being great at jiu-jitsu, being really good at jiu-jitsu and being able to take someone down and completely control them. You, you know, you can watch two Instagram videos of a, a street situation and it could be one guy taking someone down to the ground, trying to control him, and then person three comes out and kicks him in the head while he's on the ground. Mm. Or it could be the same situation, but now the guy on top, he's controlling him, he's holding his arms, his friend's phoning the police and everybody walks away controlled. It, these violent situations on the street, anything could happen. And I think awareness of yourself, awareness of your surroundings, being able to smell the trouble. I remember a, a doorman telling me once that trouble's like the sea. You know, you can smell it first and then you can hear it and then you see it. And if you can tap into that where you can almost smell trouble before it starts and then decide whether you want to tactfully retreat or get involved, then that's a better place to be. The, I think most people just see the trouble and then it's already happening and, and they're already behind the curve. And no matter what kind of martial art they do or do not, you know, once you're behind that timing, it's difficult. But if you can kind of sense, I mean, I think a lot of it, as you get older, you start to, you know, you walk into one pub, you know, it's a great atmosphere in here. Or you walk into another pub, you're like, oh, it's a bit shady in here. What, what is that? That's a sixth sense of some kind. That we, you know, and we all have it. It's just whether you can tap into it. So I think the people that can tap into their surroundings and know, no, no, we're okay here. Or no, no, this is a bit, I'm not getting a good vibe here. I think that, will keep you safe much more than boxing or jiu-jitsu or this or that. And so if you're if you're sort of teaching self-defense type of stuff, do you is a large component of that that situational awareness and sort of mental models and things and and how to deal with pressure or or do you concentrate more on okay, this is a, you know, a good way to stand and this is a good thing to do with, with your hands. I think um I think the Brazilian jiu-jitsu I learned from Mauricio, we always used to do a lot of self-defense. Uh, and then I I will teach it and I will try and give my benefit experience. So um, if we're teaching the kids self-defense, headlock, standard for the playground, right? Most kids have been put in a headlock either playfully or for real at some point. So it's not, so I try and teach the stuff that's always more than likely going to happen. What, what have we got? We've got someone grabbing you around the neck. We've got someone throwing a sucker punch. We've got someone putting you in a headlock. These kind of and, and easy things where I can go, look, you're stood at a cash point. Someone grabs you on the shoulder. What do we do? And then show a technique based and then just work that technique over and over. And then once we start to get the right technique for escaping the headlock, okay, let's be a bit more aggressive with it now. Hold them a little bit harder in the headlock swear at him a bit a little bit be a bit you know if you've got a good relationship with your partner let's be a bit nasty to him now let's say something you know and just raise it up a little bit um and you don't even need to do that to kids once you start showing the kids headlocks there'll always be the other one trying to hold it and trying to make the technique not work so you know and i think that's as far as you need to go with it and if you're at my gym and you talk to me or and, and i'm not the only guy of experience talk to a lot of guys who have experienced violence you know it's it's just that 
maybe you know if you've never been in those situations then maybe a jiu-jitsu competition would be good for you it's not going to be a real fight but you're going to experience adrenaline you're going to learn how to use it you're going to see how sometimes your body doesn't do what your mind's asking of it you know your body's a, a second behind your mind because of adrenaline or, or your, your vision goes a bit weird because you're really nervous and you know all these kind of things so i think it's a little bit of an anti-venom of some kind. You just do a little bit of the snake. You don't have to go and get into a punch-up in a pub. You could go into a, a, a boxing interclub, get punched with a 16-ounce glove on. That will give you enough of an idea to know what you might have to experience. Hmm. So what, what are your thoughts on um, competing for, for jiu-jitsu? Do, do you think generally people who are training regularly should be competing? Or you, yeah, some I've, people, I've, yes, I've, some people, no? I don't think it's for everybody. You know, some people just aren't competitive. But I, I think in terms of self-improvement, you're going to learn a lot about yourself if you do compete. You're going to learn your your fears. I mean, I've had competitions before where the, the night before, I felt like I'm walking to a firing squad the next day. And sometimes I had, had competitions where the night before I've been able to have a hot path and go to sleep. You're going to learn how your body reacts under this kind of pressure and you're going to learn your real fears, your real doubts about yourself and how you can overcome them. And, and I think in terms of personal growth, that's great. And then also you're going to see what it's like to fight against someone who you don't know their game. The guy you train with every week, you know his favourite sweep. You know how he tries to escape the armbar. Okay, now try and do it against someone where you, they might do exactly the same, but they might not. They're going to be a, a lot more aggressive because there's a medal on the line or, or whatever, or a win on the line. And, and it's very good for exposing weaknesses in your game. So in terms of, one, personal growth, competition's great. Two, finding the holes in your martial arts game so we can come back to the gym and try and plug those holes. It, it's great. And you usually find that people who compete progress quicker. You know, So for these reasons, competition is good. Um, for people who have potential to be one of the best in the world at something, then competition is a great way to showcase what kind of person you are. Um, but you can get good at jiu-jitsu without competing. There's no doubt about that. You know, I've got good friends who don't compete regularly, but they're some of my toughest roles because they're, they're good. Um, and I'm sure if they got into a fight, if, if they can control the adrenaline enough, there'll be a handful for the person who's decided to get into a fight with them. Um, but not not necessary. If you if, if your aim is to get good at jujitsu, you don't need to compete. And um, how old are you now? Uh, forty seven. I'll be forty eight this year. So there's there's I've I've just recently gone back onto Facebook. I came off a few years ago. I was like I'm done with Facebook. Yeah. And then I've I think I'm done with it again. a minute. But yeah. Yeah. Well, because of the podcast, I was yeah, like, you know yeah, what? Same. There's some groups there. Yeah. I need to, you know, yeah, they, they the get you back in the end, mate. But there's there's um. There seems to be quite a lot of older guys starting jujitsu. Mm. So there's a there's a group I found. I think it's called Fifty and Up or something right. like that. BJJ, and there's like guys in there that are fifties, sixties, seventies that are starting training, white belts. You mm. know, posting pictures. Just got my first stripe or just got a blue belt at the age of seventy or whatever. How how has your training changed? How do you think training needs to be different? As, as an older athlete? Because it is a different sort of yeah. scenario to when you're 20, right? For me, I think when I was younger, I mean, no one likes getting injured, but there's always this, 
you know, you tweak your knee, you can take a week off you, you, or a couple of weeks. Or if you hurt yourself badly, you know, I've had injuries that have lasted for, for months and months before to, to rehab properly. But when you're young, you've got all the time in the world. So even though the youngsters don't want to take any time off, missing a couple of weeks of training, it doesn't feel like the end of the world. Now I'm getting older, you become very aware of your own mortality, of, of how much time is left. I don't want, and I don't want to jinx myself, but I, I do not want to get another injury that takes me off the mat for a year. Because a year is a long time now for me, you know, or, or you know, a lot of wasted time, I should say. Um, so injury prevention has become the biggest thing that I focus on when 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 I'm training. And the easiest way to get injured in training is to train without thought. You know, just uh, I don't care that he's 120 kilos and used to play rugby for England. I'll just see if I can get him. Uh, what are you doing? You know, like you you have to start to pick your training partners a little bit better. Obviously, as as coaches, as black belts, we want to train with everybody. I mean, I, I see some threads on on the internet sometimes about, ah, oh, if your coach doesn't train. Uh, I, I agree with that. Like, if your coach isn't really training or getting on the mat sometimes, then questions should be asked, potentially. But at the same time, it's kind of crazy for, not even talking about myself, let's just say your coach is in their 50s and they're a, a natural lightweight guy and you've got a very, very dangerous visiting brown belt who's 120 kilos and wants to compete and wants to prove a point. What are you going to get from that? You're probably going to get, even if you hold the guy off. I mean, sometimes when, when I, and I still like, I mean, I don't restrict my training just to people my size and my age. I, I do pretty much train with everybody in the gym, but I will limit how many times I train with the 100 kilo blue belt. I'm not, it's not going to be every session. It's going to be once a week, once every other week. Because sometimes you can have a six-minute roll that you completely get the better of. You're getting all the guard passes. You're catching submissions and everything. But they pop back up and walk off after the six minutes. But you feel like you're the one that's been through the mill. So it's not even a case of being better or being able to handle. Sometimes it's like, man, I've just used my whole training session on that one person because of the size differences. So I think my advice to people who are, uh, are older, especially if they're just starting out, pick your training partners. Because some, some people have bad intentions. Some people are malicious. Some people are clumsy. You know, some people will break your toe and not even mean to. They'll just step on it after the roll. You know, they're just, some people are just clumsy. So pick your training partners and set your expectations as well. Are you going to be uh, an adult world champion if you're starting as a white belt when you're 50? No, you're not. It doesn't matter. You, that's not going to happen. So don't have that as an expectation. And that's fine. That's just the, just the way it is. And by the way, not a lot of adults are going to be an adult world champion either. That's, that's why it's called a champion. So um, set your expectations, pick your training partners and, and, and get with a coach who isn't, you know, Cobra Kai. No, get in there, fight for broken leg, hit him with a broken leg, you know. And forget that. That's for Hollywood. You know, be realistic and, and, and use the trainer for your benefit. You know, you, you, training is to improve you as a person. Fitter, stronger, faster, smarter. If those things aren't happening, your training is not working for you. you you've gone down the wrong road. If, it's, if, if, if training is killing you and making you weaker and more vulnerable, 
You know, I mean, nothing worse than having a a, a, a bad back or a bad knee and now you're walking in a shady part of London because if someone jumps, you're like, well, I'm already half broken. Yeah. You know, so you, 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 the training should be empowering and strengthening most of the time. So, yeah, manage, older, older guys and girls training, manage your expectations, pick your training partners and try and make sure your training is improving you, not taken away from you. Mm. It's good advice. Have you have you got any other any other pearls of wisdom for jujitsu training and learning? Anything that you mistakes you think people make, things that people can do to improve their efficiency or learn faster? Um, I think trust in the process. You know that that ten thousand hours rule, the, the Malcolm Gladwell idea of just if you do something for 10,000 hours, you will become proficient in it. And what did I see the other day? Um, if you practice something for 15 minutes a day, you'll be better than 90% um, of people in the world at it because most people don't even do that. So I think just trust in the process, get on the mat regularly. I would say anywhere between two and five times a week training of some kind, you will improve. You know, forget, I mean... I think some advice would be stay off the internet and stop listening to people because people, I, I read stuff by someone and it almost convinces me. Then I see, oh, they're a blue belt. They gave up training three years ago. They now just run an internet marketing company. That's why he's at the top of my feed. You, you know, it's like there's so many, we used to call them instant experts in the army, you know, just add water, just add water and they'll tell you everything you need to know about anything. And I think not just jujitsu, not just martial arts, Everything in life has these people. Just find a good, and you'll know a good school. It'll, you'll know it. You, you know, just train at a good gym. And the internet can be good for that, you know, just see what people say about these gyms. But find an environment that you're comfortable in training where you feel like you're improving and just be consistent and you will get good. How good you get will be your genetics, your diet, your private life, your, 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 your personal drive as a human being, that's what will de decide whether you're going to be a champion or not. But if you want to get good at something, turn up and train. Simple as that. Yeah, it's, it, it is as simple and as complicated as that, isn't it? Because it's a, it's a people, myself included, you know, they want to, to have the magic... Yeah. Pill, but the, the, it really is. You just got to keep going back. Well, we're in a recording studio right now, and there's there's guitars on the wall. If you want to get good at playing the guitar, you're gonna have to pick the guitar up and start playing it. You're not gonna. Doesn't matter how many books you read about re playing the guitar, how many Jimi Hendrix concert, you know, um, concerts you watch. It's not gonna make. It's gonna add to the layers of your knowledge and everything, which is gonna be useful later down the road. But you're gonna have to sit down and play the guitar for hours and hours and hours and be frustrated and make mistakes and feel like you're useless. Well, if you do that with guitar, you're gonna have to do that with jujitsu. If if wh whatever you do, if you haven't done it before, you need consistent training. There, there. Pick anything. Pick any subject. Any any activity. If you don't spend time doing it you won't be any good at doing it, you know, and so jujitsu will be no different. That's probably a good place to to round it out. Okay. Thank you very much for coming down. It's been it's been fantastic oh, to, thanks for uh, having me. to talk. So um the the uh, club is RGA RGA Bucks, Bucks yeah, in, in Aylesbury. Aylesbury, yeah. Um there's a website. Is there a website? RGA Bucks.com. 
And are you on social media much? Yeah, yeah, Kev Capel, uh, Facebook, Instagram. The club's got its own stuff as well. So if you just type in RGA Bucks on Instagram or, or Facebook, there's stuff all over there with what we're doing. I try and keep it all fairly up to date with, with what the club's doing, what it's just done, what it's got coming up. So Yes, yeah, so I'll put I'll put links for all of those in the in the show notes. So uh, yeah, if any of you guys are are looking for a, a well experienced, uh, well well worn um, instructor and a, and a club in Aylesbury, um, go and check them out, and um, make sure you're following the podcast. Um, so even though you shouldn't spend too much time online, as we've <laughs> just uh, just discussed, um, you just should, while you're driving, yeah, you should Good definitely spend a lot of time listening to these podcasts. So uh, at White Basement Pod on Instagram is the best place. Um, you can listen to the podcast everywhere that you listen to podcasts. Uh, try and put one out every Tuesday, five a.m. So uh, for all those early birds that wake up early, as you should, and get uh, get uh, one up on the competition. It's out 5 a.m. every Tuesday morning. Um, so, yeah, thank you for listening. Thank you for following us, and we'll catch you next time. Rap is such a competitive sport. Uh-huh. My glass is still on. It's the incredible dog. Uh-huh. <laughs> they want to try me like the federal car, but I'm unashamed of the gospel. I never retort. That statement of the rappers a wax sauce. DJ treat them like Mr. Miyagi and turn they wax off. Reaching God's standards, we all fall short. Like trying to shoot a medicine ball.